We're coming to the end of our 21-day fast. Um, If you've cut something out of your life in the last month, maybe you cut out some food or drink or entertainment, that you've changed some things, uh, we've done that to seek God, to learn about about what it means to really follow Jesus more wholeheartedly. But I would say to you, if you've cut something out of your life in the last month, uh, if you've, if you've, you know, reduced the influence of something in your, in your life, be, be careful about how you reintroduce it. Um, so if you, if you uh, have not been eating meat or sweets, don't go get a porterhouse tonight. Uh, don't go to Safeway and get a sheet cake, which I know some of you are planning to do. Don't eat your feelings. Um, be careful about things like social media. Many of you are fasting social media. Be careful to not get into the habit of like your alarm goes off and it's on your phone and so you pick up your phone and you immediately start looking at it. Um, be careful about that. Set some boundaries for yourself. Ask somebody that cares about you to check in on you with how you're doing with those kinds of things. Um, you know, d- if you've been fasting alcohol like I have, don't go crush a six-pack. It will be an, o- an overindulgence. That's not a good idea anyway. Uh, so, uh, you know, so be careful with those kinds of things. Uh, now, fasting, what we've been doing the last 21 days is a great opportunity to make sure that we stay focused on the Lord, even as we uh, bring various comforts back into our lives. Uh, if you've developed a new discipline of reading the Bible, make sure you, you, you schedule that into your, into your life. If you've dis- developed a new discipline of prayer, make sure you schedule that into your life so that it's, it becomes second nature. See, what we've been doing is we've been trying to focus our vision on the Lord. The series that we've been in has been all about vision. And my iPad is picking up a Siri command, and that's not what I'm doing. <laughs> what we want to do is seek God's vision for our church and for our lives. So I want to ask you, did you discover anything about God's vision? Did you learn something new? Did, did you learn something new about yourself or about what God's doing in the world? Have you had any insight into how you fit into to this little church plant in Denver? Uh, and that's what I want to talk about tonight. What comes next for us? What happens at the end of the fast? What happens at the end of the fast? And here's what we're going to focus on tonight. As we come to the end of the fast, it's time to answer Jesus' call to follow him, to tell others the good news of Jesus, and to seek God daily for his presence in our lives and in the world around us. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 4. We're going to open up the scriptures and look at these together. Uh, Matthew 4. Again, the focus is as we come to the end of the fast, It's time to answer Jesus' call to follow him, to tell others the good news of Jesus, and to seek God daily in our lives and in the world around us. What we're looking at in Matthew 4 tonight, uh, there's a little context around this that I'd love to provide. Uh, Matthew, uh, this gospel of Matthew was written by one of Jesus' friends, a companion of his, a disciple, somebody who was trying to uh, imitate the way that Jesus lived his life. Matthew was a tax collector. Actually, his Hebrew name was Levi. If you've ever read about him in the Bible, sometimes he's referred to as Levi. That was actually very common in the ancient world for people to have two names, one from their home culture and one from kind of the broader Greek culture. Matthew was a Greek name. Levi was a Hebrew name. You see this with Saul of Tarsus, an early Christian. Um, he was, his Hebraic name was Saul, but all his Greek friends surely called him Paul. It's just a common thing. And it's actually not true that God changed Saul's name to Paul. There you go. There's a little Sunday school lesson for you. I just wanted to throw that in there because I care about that. Now, Matthew was written to Jewish readers. 
Matthew is written to Jewish readers. So he uses the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, quite a bit. He refers to it. He quotes it quite a bit. And what he's trying to do is to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. He's trying to say, hey, this person, Jesus, is incredibly important. He actually has interest not only in Jesus, but in Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. John the Baptist comes before Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Uh, uh, In Matthew's gospel, Matthew talks about John as a kind of forerunner, a prophet who would come to announce that the Messiah had come. John's very interested in this person, or Matthew's very interested in this person. What John would do, John the Baptist, what he would do is he would preach to people this simple message. Repent because the kingdom of God has come near to you. Repent because the kingdom of God was coming near. I'll talk more about what that means in a minute. Right before what we're about to read, Jesus actually was baptized by John, by his cousin, and it was a sign, his baptism was, a sign of his important role as the Messiah to God's people. Then after Jesus gets baptized. He goes into the wilderness, and he goes on a fast, a 40-day fast. It was probably a water-only fast. For 40 days, he goes into the wilderness, and he's seeking his Father God. See, we've been fasting as a church for 21 days. Now, fasting is a way of helping us to recognize that what we need is not self-help or some religious program, but we need God's presence in our lives more than we need food or drink or entertainment. That's what fasting is all about. And this month, we've been talking about how we need God's vision for our lives. That is, we need a little bit to see what God sees and to be able to follow him the way that he wants us to follow him. Fasting and prayer, then, focus our eyes on God's will so that we can experience God's breakthrough in our lives and in our church do you, any of you have places where you, and you don't have to raise a hand or anything, where you need God's breakthrough in your life? You need something to change in your life. Fasting is a way that we've sought that. And actually, that seems to be what Jesus was doing when he was fasting. He's saying that he needs the Father's vision. He needs the Father's perspective more than he needs food. And what we're about to read, we're going to see what happens in Jesus' life at the end of his fast. At the end of his fast, what happens? What happens next? And I think that's important for us, those of us who've been fasting. What comes next for us? How should we live differently? How should we be looking at the world differently? What happens at the end of the fast? And again, our focus is that as we come to the end of the fast, it's time to answer Jesus' call to follow him, to tell others the good news about Jesus, and to seek God daily for his presence in our lives. Let's look at Matthew 4, and this is verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. So this is his cousin, his Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, who had baptized Jesus just 40 days prior. This mention of John is important here in Matthew's gospel. Um, he's saying that Jesus is completing John's mission. John the Baptist was thrown into prison. That's a different story. We can talk about that another time. But he's thrown into prison. He's eventually killed. And what, what Matthew is saying is that because John was put in prison, Jesus actually goes into action, knowing that it's his time to complete the mission that John started. See, John was preaching about repentance. He was saying, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near talk about what that means in a moment. So what Jesus does is he travels. 
he travels to his family, uh, he travels from, sorry, from, from the Jordan River region, which is in southern Israel, uh, where, where John was baptizing. And he travels up north. He travels to Galilee. It was probably about 70 miles of a trip, t- typically a couple of days, maybe three days walking. Um, so he travels from, from the south to the region in the north. Look at verse 13. Leaving Nazareth, he, Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So in Galilee, Jesus travels to his family's home of Nazareth. This is where Jesus grew up. He travels to his family's home of Nazareth. And then he goes a little bit further north and to the east around a large lake called the Sea of Galilee. So Nazareth is here. This is the Mediterranean Ocean. I should have put a map up, but I didn't. Uh, Nazareth is here. The, the lake is here. Jesus travels up to the north and east side of the lake to Capernaum. Capernaum. Now, this was a fishing village, uh, and there were actually ruins of a synagogue there. Jesus probably preached in that synagogue. We know where that synagogue is today. And what Matthew is doing is he's arguing that Jesus is, is the Messiah by appealing to the Jewish scriptures. In particular, he's appealing to a very important Jewish prophet named Isaiah, who lived about 800 years before Jesus. And he's saying, you see what Isaiah was talking about, how there's this land of Zebulun and Naphtali, and and it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. That's where the light will dawn. And so Matthew is saying, Jesus is the light that you're seeing dawn in this land. Zebulun and Naphtali, these were Jewish patriarchs. They were, they were kind of the patriarchs of two of the 12 tribes that made up the people of Israel. Zebulun and Naphtali had lived uh, hundreds and hundreds, uh, over a thousand years before this. But what it's saying is that that land, the land where the people of Zebulun and the people of Naphtali had, had settled, that was where you would see the Messiah shine his light. It was a land of darkness, and the light was dawning in Jesus. Look at verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, there are a lot of versions around on what, on what G- people think Jesus' message was. People tell a lot of stories about what Jesus' main ideas were. What was he really getting at with his life and his ministry? People will say, Jesus' ministry, his message was all about loving others. Anybody want to object to that? Probably not. (laughs) Some people will say Jesus' life and his ministry was all about advocating for justice for the oppressed. That's actually true. Jesus' life and ministry, some people will say, was all about standing up against a corrupt government. And actually, that's true as well. Uh, Some people would say Jesus' ministry was all about rejecting religious religious self-righteousness. That Jesus was saying you can't hide behind your religion and pretend that you're good. That's not good enough. It's actually partially true. Some people will say Jesus' whole message was all about not judging other people. He would say don't judge others. That's actually partially true as well. These are actually all parts of Jesus' message. Loving others, standing up against corruption, advocating for the oppressed, rejecting religious self-righteousness. 
But you do you know what was at the heart of Jesus' preaching? What was Jesus talking about? It's this very odd message, at least what is to us very odd. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The first word might strike you as very odd. Repent. If I say that, I sound like really judgy and mean, right? Like, you need to repent, right? That's a little scary. What does that mean? The word means that God sees your sin, and he knows that it's killing you. He sees the brokenness of our culture, and he knows that it's killing us. He sees the way that women are mistreated, and he knows that it's killing them. He sees the way that people love their money more than they love God, and he knows that it's killing them. And he's saying, turn away from your sin. The message of Jesus is a strong message, and it has the authority of God behind it. Turn away from your sin. Stop sinning. That's what the word repent means. It means to turn. See, here's the thing about, about, about Jesus, is that he's, in, in all of his message, he's claiming to have a special relationship to God the Father. In fact, he says that if you've seen me, that is, if you've seen Jesus, you have seen God the Father. That is, to experience Jesus is to experience God himself. And who better to tell us that it's time to turn around when we're about to make a huge mistake? Who better to warn us that if we keep sinning, it's going to destroy us than God himself. Who better to look at our lives and to have the kind of objective judgment to be able to say, I love you, but please turn away from your sin. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven has come near in himself. If you're seeing me, you're seeing God's leadership reestablished in the world, and it's time to turn away from your sin. See, this might strike you as odd, that Jesus gives this call to repentance, a call to repentance. But it's really Jesus saying, I'm the divine judge. I'm the perfect judge, and I know what you need. See, when you get to the end of the fast, you've probably learned the beauty of repentance. I have. (laughs) When you get to the end of a fast, you realize how weak and wretched you are without those things that can comfort you and make you feel good about yourself. You realize that how, how needy you are when you take away something as, as silly as social media and you have all this anxiety about it. You realize how much you really need God when you take away food and you recognize, I don't even need food half as much as I need God's presence in my life. See, when you get to the end of the fast, you know that you need to turn away from things. You start to realize the ways in which you're prideful and sinful and broken. Fasting should naturally help us to recognize that we need, we need God's forgiveness for sins. So that call of, to repentance that Jesus offers is something he's offering to us at the end of our fast today. He's saying the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus is saying that God's presence is now on the earth. And I think one thing we've seen in the 21 days of fasting is some really cool ways where we've seen God's presence. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Let's look at verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee. 
preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So Jesus, in this northern region of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee, he starts to walk around the lake. And he sees two sets of brothers, and he calls them to follow himself. This is a call to discipleship, a call to discipleship. What this would have meant is that Jesus was asking these men to apprentice their lives to him. He's saying, start following me and doing as I do. Start living the way that I'm living. Now, this is different than Jesus inviting them to watch. He's not doing that. He's saying, start living like I'm living. He's not inviting them as if, like, he's, you know, inviting them to a concert. Hey, come watch a concert with me, or come sit in in the pews at a church service with me. He's He's saying to them, start living your life the way I'm living my life. And when we come to the end of the fast, we should have a strong sense that Jesus is calling us to apprentice our lives to his. We want to live the way that Jesus lived. Instead of caring about the comforts of this life, Jesus is saying that we should start living our lives in imitation of who he is. Well, what does that look like? These men were fishermen. And he's saying, I know you're good at fishing for fish, and I'm going to ask you to come and start fishing for people. He's saying, I want you to start bringing people to me and telling them the good news. Tell them about what I'm doing. Give this same message of repentance to other people. People need to repent and apprentice themselves to Jesus. Jesus is saying, just like you've been fishing, I want you to fish for people. This is a call to evangelism. And this is something that we should realize at the end of our fast. It's time for us to answer this call. If you call Hope Denver home, it's time for us to answer the call to evangelism. We all have people in our lives who need to hear the good news of what Jesus has done. They need to hear that good news. It's too good to keep it to ourselves. See, if Jesus is this important, if in Jesus we see God himself redeeming and reclaiming the world, this is too good of a message to keep to ourselves. Amen? This is too good to keep it to ourselves. What's great about this story is that these men actually decide to follow Jesus. See, many times in the Bible, Jesus' followers, his disciples, are total boneheads. But, <laughs> but in this story, they're actually like pretty great. They immediately drop what they're doing. It says that James and John even left their father. And this would have been a sign that they were kind of taking the authority that they had given to their father, and they were actually giving that same authority to Jesus. And they were starting to follow Jesus that way. See, it's very easy for us to have a label of Christian, but it's very difficult to obey God when he tells you to do something. But that's the call that we have. You need to decide who's in charge in your life. So do I. Look at verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. So Jesus travels throughout the region of Galilee. He's teaching in Jewish religious settings in their synagogues, and he starts healing people. This is a demonstration of the kingdom. 
And this is something you see at the end of a fast. You could imagine why there would be so many crowds. If people are starting to get healed because of this, this, this little Jewish rabbi named Jesus, if people are actually getting healed, then something's happening. People don't follow a teacher around because they're like, hey, he's got some interesting things to say. Let's walk around the country with him. They follow him around because something was happening with Jesus where people were actually getting healed and they wanted to know what that was like. Well, what they saw was a demonstration that God's kingdom had actually come already. New Testament scholar Craig Evans says this about Jesus. He says, works of power always accompany his powerful words. That's important for you and me to know because as we read the words of God in the Bible, works of power always accompany those words. See, with Jesus, what you're seeing is the presence and power of God. And this means that miraculous things will start happening. There's actually even kind of a strange one in here, that Jesus was casting out demons. Did you notice that? This is something that was not at all odd for the ancient world. See, the people that Jesus was ministering to, they had a worldview that I would call a supernaturalistic worldview. They thought that they were living in a universe that had physical beings and immaterial beings. Most people had that perspective on reality. They thought, yeah, there's humans, and then there are persons that are not human, that are spiritual beings. (laughs) They believed in that kind of world. And actually, Jesus got in trouble for casting out demons because some people, they thought, wait a minute, this guy is casting out the works of the devil. How could he be doing that? He's just a man. We can see him. So how is he doing this? And they would, they would say to him, hey, the reason that you're doing this is you're actually using the power of Satan to cast out demons. And Jesus responded, actually, very philosophically. Those of you who, who know me, you know I'm a philosopher of religion. I like this kind of stuff. Jesus actually uses a kind of argument called reductio ad absurdum that will be on the test later. And he, he says, If I'm casting out demons by the power of Satan, then that means that Satan is divided against himself. And we all know that a house divided against itself cannot stand. He's saying it's absurd to say that I'm using the power of Satan to cast out demons. He's saying, in fact, what you're seeing is that I have the power of God in me to do these things. What does he do? Jesus does miraculous things again and again. At the end of a fast, we've seen some miraculous things. In my, my uh, prayer group, we had prayer groups during this 21-day fast. In my prayer group, we had, um, we had somebody speak in another language that they didn't know. The Bible calls that speaking in tongues. They spoke in another language that they didn't know. They didn't know what they were saying. And there was then an interpretation of what had been spoken So there was an interpretation of that tongue. And it was an interpretation in English, so we could all understand it. That's a miraculous thing. Miraculous things happen when you are fasting, when you're seeking God. When you have a call to discipleship, a call to repentance, and you obey it. When you have a call to obedience, to evangelism, you will see a demonstration of the kingdom. And that's something that we saw during this fast. See, when you're fasting, you're so desperate for divine answers that God obliges and does powerful works. I'd like to invite up my friend Amanda, and she's going to share a little bit of something that happened to her during the 21-day fast. And this was really exciting. 
and I wouldn't want to ruin it, so I'll let her say. <laughs> Hi, I'm Amanda. Um, about three weeks ago, um, I had an allergic reaction and took some Benadryl, and um, Benadryl fixed the allergic reaction, but then I had this stomach pain that I didn't understand. Um, it felt like I needed to throw up, and I couldn't, and I was just the only position that I could feel any relief was just being in the fetal position. Um, and it wasn't going away. I have history of stomach pain in my past that I was healed from. And so it was honestly a little bit scary, even though I do believe in healing. Um, but I, it was keeping me from working. I was trying to power through and I was feeling horrible and it was going on pushing a week and a half. Um, Last Sunday, I was um, working, really strained it, came in to service, and was praying. And then after service, just tell, uh, told Pastor Ike and Pastor Kelsey what was going on and how sick I had been for the last week and a half. I, I had been in urgent care. I had been in the emergency room, and they had tested, and they weren't finding anything. So it was getting to the point of just feeling frustrating and hopeless, and I was just in pain. Um, but told them what was going on, and... Immediately they said, well, let's pray, and anointed me with oil and prayed, and I was kind of riding out of a pain level of like one to ten. I was kind of riding an eight consistently, um, and when they prayed, it dropped to like a two. So I was really excited and went home and um, could actually move around and get some things done, and the next morning I was spending some time with the Lord, and I was reflecting on when I was a teenager and I was healed from five years of stomach pain. And I was like, Lord, you're like the song says, like he doesn't hide himself, himself to tease us. Um, I was like, you're not like, you can heal me fully. You, you created my body. You can heal it. Um, I was like, so Lord, I'm just going to keep fighting. I'm going to keep contending for this. And I hadn't at the beginning of this fast, I was planning on fasting food and then all this stomach pain came. And so I didn't. Um, I fasted social media, but the, um, that last Monday, this previous Monday, um, I woke up with a pain level of like a two fasted till the evening. And I was like, I believe Lord, you're going to heal me. I'm going to contend for this and fight for this. Um, and about three o'clock it was gone and I'm healed. So, yeah. Praise God. Can we just praise God for that? Thank you, Jesus. We bless you, Lord. Let's lift up applause to him again. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. See, this is what happens when you decide that life as usual is not good enough. And we have, we have a, whole, a whole city around us that needs to know about this Jesus who brings healing to a dear friend. We, need, uh, we have a whole city around us who needs to know about Jesus who brings real hope and restoration for those of us who have been wounded or injured or abused. We have a whole city around us who need to know about who this Jesus is. So what fasting has done for us, and this is an amazing thing, it's helped us to recognize that we have bigger needs than those comforts that come into our lives on a regular basis. We have bigger needs than our food or drink or our entertainment. As we come to the end of a fast, it's time to answer Jesus' call to follow him, to tell others the good news of Jesus, and to seek daily God's presence in our lives. But as we come, as we come to the end of a fast also, I want to take a little bit of time for communion. I'll have the keys up if that's all right. We're going to receive 
the body and blood of the Lord tonight. We're going to come to the table of communion and approach God that way. See, following Jesus is not just about repentance and action. It's not, hey, you've got to do some stuff now. That's important. We need to obey him. We do. But following Jesus is also about having kind of a different posture towards life, one of receiving from him and just saying thank you to him for what he's already done. Following Jesus means just being in his presence and saying, I love you. And communion helps us to do that. As we close, I, I want to share a little bit of my testimony from the, our time of fasting. When we've been fasting, I've had such a strong sense of being poor in spirit. This is what, this is what Jesus says uh, uh, in the Beatitudes. We're going to read this in just a minute. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Somebody who's poor in spirit recognizes that there's nothing that you can bring to the table which will make you good enough or accepted by God. Somebody who's poor in spirit can simply say, all I have is myself and it's not worth a ton. (laughs) Somebody who's poor in spirit can say, I've made a lot of mistakes. Somebody who's poor in spirit can come before God and say, Terrible things were done to me. But somebody who's poor in spirit is also in the perfect place to experience the very power and presence of God. That's what I've experienced in my life over the last 21 days. That my poverty of spirit, the weaknesses that I perceive in myself, I don't have to think about those and feel bad about who I am I just bring myself to God and he accepts me the way that I am. See, when there's poverty in spirit, you have room for the riches of the king in your life. And so as we come to the table of communion, I want to remind you how God blesses people who are weak, people who are poor. This is from Matthew 5. Again, after the fast, this is what happens with Jesus. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And he said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Meekness means that you have power, but you control it. You don't let your power control you. You control your power. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful. Some of you are so naturally merciful, and God looks at you and says, Congratulations. You will be happy because you are this way. For they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Do you want to see God? Then ask him to make you pure. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. How do you recognize somebody who's, who's God's child? Well, they make peace. That's what Jesus does. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, Falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad.
because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As we come to the end of the fast, we need to know that this is who we are. We're people who are blessed because we know God. We're not just obedient apprentices to Jesus. We're people who are blessed because God is strong in our weakness, amen? We're blessed because we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're blessed because we mourn. And we're blessed because we will be comforted, amen? We're blessed because we're persecuted for righteousness. We're blessed because we're meek and lowly, humble and broken. We are blessed because God has made us strong, because the kingdom of God is among us. We're blessed because he's forgiven us, and we're blessed because he's healing us. This king is here, and the scriptures say about this king that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end.